Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. It's Friday, December the 17th in the year of our Lord 2021, careening to its conclusion in the holiday season. We hope both are going well for you and yours wherever you're listening across the street around the world. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Welcome to Herd Tell Radio. I am just thrilled to have done another week with you folks. Thank you so much for your support as we continue to try to turn down the news cycle noise and get to the information we need to make good decisions and discern our times. And we're going to lead off with a story that definitely needs some discernment. Uh, Later in the program, we're going to talk to our friend Adam Bass, a little Massachusetts uh, politics. We're going to, as we go into an election year in 2022, the midterm elections, we're going to look at different states and different places. We want to keep a wide perspective on different things going on in the country, something we always work on here. We do perspective. That's why we talk to folks overseas. We talk to people in different states. We're going to look at the politics inside of different states over the coming years, all part of the perception that we want to try to do and the wider perspective we try to apply here. Also, we're going to have a story about a great American hero who saved Canada that has gone viral lately, and we'll touch on that. But first, uh, let's talk about something that needs to be discussed that, frankly, I'd rather not discuss because I don't like delving into these things, but uh, it's important for us to make sure that we're dealing in truth and that we understand that how we get our information is the most important part of making sure we have good information to put back out to other people. Uh, It's gone viral, and it's the most trending thing for two days running now as we enter into Friday. But um, let's back up for just a second and understand why it's going viral. Uh, There's an individual called Dr. Peter McCullough. He is a cardiologist by training, and he has been making a pretty good living for the better part of last year, uh, talking about COVID-19, specifically the vaccines, treatments, things like this. It's a free country. He's free to do so. He is a doctor. That's all legitimate. Uh, But he went on to the Joe Rogan podcast. Now, uh, just make sure everybody's on the same page here. You need to understand what the Joe Rogan podcast is. I'm not talking about your opinions of whether you like the podcast or not. That's subjective. You're free to listen to whatever entertainment you want to. The Joe Rogan podcast is the most popular podcast in America, probably in the world. Uh, To give you some perspective here on how popular this podcast is, one episode of the Joe Rogan Experience, the name of his podcast, gets almost three times the views of all the cable news networks combined in prime time. This is a massive source of information for people. Uh, Joe Rogan's contract with Spotify was over $100 million. He is extremely well paid. He's extremely popular. He has mastered the medium. Uh, 
with that has come criticism from different parts about what he does with that platform. Uh, we're not going to get into all that because here on Hertel, uh, we don't tell you what to think. We just give you information and you figure it out how you deem best fit. So whether you like Joe Rogan or don't like Joe Rogan is really neither here nor there to the information that we want to talk about right now. But you do need to acknowledge, as I do, he's probably the most popular podcaster on the planet, certainly in America. He is a very, very loud voice in our discourse. One thing I have criticized him for is when you have that big of a platform, you should have some responsibilities to go with it. You can't just be the I'm just asking questions guy and platform really questionable stuff under the guise of I'm just asking questions when you're making that much money and you have that big of a platform. That's just my opinion. You're free to disagree with it. But Joe Rogan is an entertaining guy. He's been the UFC commentator, so he's been in the public eye for a long time. He does stand up comedy. He, he knows how to entertain and he has a big platform. So when he brought on uh, Peter McCullough, Dr. Peter McCullough, and did a three-hour podcast on COVID and the things that uh, Peter McCullough talked about on the podcast have been going viral. They've been getting pushed very, very hard on social media. Uh, it's become a big thing. We're not going to do a point-by-point -point discussion of a three-hour podcast because we don't have time to do it, and it's there's a lot of information there to parse through. Again, one thing we're never going to do, we never insult you folks, the audience, because you're smart enough to dig into these things as much or as little as you want to. But I think what would be fair here is we do need to understand who these people are. We just talked about who Joe Rogan is. He's the most popular podcaster in America. He's way bigger audience than any news network or television program has. It's a massive part of our discourse. So what we are going to talk about for a minute here is who Peter McCullough is. We're going to go back in time a little bit. Uh, this is from August. And before anybody wants to talk about uh, biased media, this is from our friends over at Hot Air, Taylor Millard, known as a right-leaning publication. It's a Salem publication. So however you filter that in, that's what this is written in. And this is in August, long before he came onto the Joe Rogan podcast. And I'm just going to read from Taylor Millard's piece, uh, somebody I follow on Twitter and respect for the most part. Quote, Dr. Peter McCullough is a medical doctor known for his appearances in media and in front of government panels expressing some skepticism regarding coronavirus treatment, specifically the vaccines. He's claimed, whether it be online, in interviews, or in testimony before state legislatures, to be Baylor University's Medical Center Vice Chair of Internal Medicine and or a professor at Texas A&M University. Again, this is out of hot air back in August the 1st from Taylor Millard. Quoting, there's one problem, he's not. Baylor Scott and White Health, a.k.a. Baylor University Medical Center, sued McCullough last week, that would have been the last week of July, claiming he had breached a separation agreement reached in February of 2021 by continuously identifying himself as a member of BUMC or the BSSW. It includes appearances on Stu Peters and The Blaze, that's Glenn Beck's, Glenn Beck's network, excuse me, where the Baylor affiliation was mentioned. The court documents say the hospital has gotten multiple requests about his affiliation, along with social media comments criticizing Baylor's work. The hospital system is worried about losing patients and other business because McCullough remains identified with them. His affiliations, continuing to read from Hot Air and Taylor Millard, his affiliation with Texas A&M University is more unclear. A&M and Baylor Scott and White, that's the Baylor Hospital, are affiliated with each other through the College of Medicine. McCullough's name is no longer listed as a faculty member or an expert on internal medicine, COVID, or cardiology, 
but it's not known if that ended with his separation agreement with BSW was finalized. Texas A&M did not respond to a request when he left the College of Medicine, but this piece will be updated should they respond. McCullough's attorneys blame mistakes made by the outlets when he makes the appearance. Quote, every single instance referred to by Baylor is something said printed by a third party with no encouragement from Dr. McCullough, Clinton Michael said in a statement to the Dallas Morning News. Dr. McCullough does not and cannot control third parties. End quote. Back to what Taylor Millard's writing. There's truth to this statement. However, McCullough's biography at America Out Loud lists his affiliation with TCU and the UNTHSC, where he is a professor. It's not known when he started teaching there, but he's never been identified as a faculty member in his appearances, including an interview published on July the 25th. Again, this piece is from August the 1st, so this is relevant to the moment, where he again listed at Texas A&M. It is not known how recently he joined the school, but one would think he's correct outlets on their mistake. It's responsible, not to mention more ethically sound, and not that hard to tell somebody, hey, I'm now here. McCullough's attorneys suggest politics are as another reason for the suit under the theory Baylor wants to silence the cardiologist from opining on COVID. The truth appears otherwise, though. BSSW's temporary restraining order that they took out against Dr. Peter McCullough request includes specific text noting he's welcome to give his opinion on COVID vaccines and treatments all he wants. Baylor just doesn't want their name attached to it. Quote, this is not a free speech issue or a stifling of dissent. McCullough can offer his opinions to whomever he wishes, but he cannot do so while claiming a current affiliation with the plaintiffs. That would be Baylor. He bargained away that ability in the separation agreement. End quote. What is interesting is the very day the lawsuit was filed, McCullough made sure to tell One American News he was no longer affiliated with Baylor Hospital or Texas A&M. Funny how quick things change when one gets sued. And again, Taylor Millard writing in hot air. McCullough shouldn't be silenced for giving his opinion on coronavirus. He's more than welcome to discuss whatever treatments he believes best. He just needs to be honest about his employment situation and his affiliations. Mistakes will happen, but at what point is someone becoming unethical when he or she fails to correct the record? Hopefully McCullough's newfound clarification on who he's with will not be a flash in the pan and he'll be more honest in the future. But this does raise questions. What else is McCullough not saying if he's willing to be revealed about when he practices medicine? Why aren't we willing to raise an eyebrow at McCullough's comments now that we know he's not listed where he said he was listed? If we're also willing to show skepticism towards CDC, politicians, bureaucrats, and others about more restrictive COVID measures. That's from Taylor Millard in Hot Air back in August. This is long before he appeared on the recent Joe Rogan Experience podcast that is now going viral, and everybody is citing him for various things that he said and purports in that podcast. Now, again, we're not going to do point-by-point refutations because you're all grown adults. If you want to go listen to the podcast, you can. You have the power in your hand called a smartphone or on your computer to Google and do your own research on the claims he makes and decide for themselves and for yourself. You can decide all these things, but we're going to put out information about who these people are because that's a part of deciding whether their information is valid or not. The fact that he's been doing conferences with questionable people over the summer is also something I factor into whether or not I take his information at face value. So do your own homework. Just because somebody shows up on the most popular podcast in America with credentials, with a title, 
with an experience means everything he says automatically becomes gospel truth. For example, I tweeted out something very roughly along the lines of what I'm saying here, and I immediately get a tweet with four direct questions about can I refute the science and the things that he's saying. If you can tweet at me four questions immediately, you should be able to ask two or three of the source material to start with before you go and ride out to try to make it a new thing for you. This goes to what we talk about on this show a lot, what we call avataring. Are you doing your own homework and your own research and your own information? Are you making sure you're critical? I agree with Taylor Millard. We should be critical of not only Peter McCullough, but the CDC and the government and everybody else. Critical thinking is base level adulting. You should be critical of everything. Get information and then make a good decision. That's what we're advocating for here. But if you're just avataring because you like the Joe Rogan podcast or you like Joe Rogan or you like Peter McCullough or probably more specifically, Peter McCullough might tell you some things that you want to hear that you don't think other people are saying doesn't necessarily make them true. This is why we're talking about avataring. You're just latching on to Peter McCullough or a Joe Rogan or whoever else and taking whatever they say to be true without doing your homework on it. Some of what he says might be true. Some of it may not be. You need to do your own homework on it. And don't just smash send and retweet and pile on with everybody else until you take in the full measure of people. So speaking only for myself, if you're being iffy and dodgy about your credentials, I'm going to have even more questions about the information you're bringing. I know folks get all tied up in the conspiracy theories. They're fun. And everybody's out to get me is a great coverall for things like I wasn't being forthcoming with my credentials. So if you want to attack me for not taking Peter McCullough and the Joe Rogan podcast at face value, that's fine. I'm just telling you up front, just because you're on the most popular podcast in America, isn't going to be enough for me to say your information is good. Same as just because you're the president of the United States doesn't mean your information is good. Same as just because I host the Hertel Radio means my information is good. You need to fact check me. You need to fact check the president. You need to fact check the CDC. And you sure need to make sure you're fact checking Joe Rogan's and Peter McCullough and see if they're giving you good information or not. Don't be a part of the herd. Be an individual first. Individual responsibility is something that'll keep you out of a lot of trouble here. Your individual responsibility with all this COVID information is to get the best information you can from a wide variety of sources and not just Avatar, the most popular voice in podcasting. We have more Hurtel Radio coming up right after this. Welcome back to Hurtel Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with us. Uh, we hope you are subscribed on whatever platform you're listening, whether this is on Facebook, YouTube, any of the uh, podcasting platforms. If you can make sure you subscribe, you'll get both Hurtel Radio on weekdays and the Hurtel podcast where we do a little bit deep diving with. I want to talk about for just a second, you've probably heard tell that there's uh, there's bad people on social media and bad people in news media and very bad people that use both of those things for their own ends. Uh, this is not shocking. Uh, human behavior is undefeated, as we often talk about here. 
And part of that human behavior is that bad people do bad things. And a lot of times bad people show up to do bad things, saying things to try to con good people into going along with them. I don't like to just name their names because there's a certain subset of people in our current discourse who it's basically nailing jello to the wall. You can't really engage them because any engagement at all, you're just giving them more bandwidth. They're not good faith arguers. They're not good faith discussions. And the more attention you give them, they just use that to spread their wickedness even further. They feed off that stuff. At the same time, you want to be able to denounce them. So what do we do with people like this? Um, I go back uh, to one of the greatest presidential speeches ever given, one of my favorite speeches ever given. And though as a man and as a president, he had a lot of lacking failures and did some horrific things policy-wise, FDR's D-Day speech is something that I go back to over and over again. Uh, first of all, can you imagine if the president of the United States got on TV and streaming the way Roosevelt got on radio and led the nation in prayer? Uh, people's heads would explode. They'd probably never recover from it. But as the D-Day operations were going on and, and the way the time lapse worked and because of security and, and the time zone difference and the technology of the day, the, the D-Day landings were well in progress when he announced that it was going on. The end of his uh, D-Day prayer speech, which I think is one of the great moments in American rhetoric ever, uh, most people call it the Mighty Endeavor speech. Um, and that part of it's famous, but the end of that speech deals with something very profound and very American. And I just want to read it to you. And again, this is in the context of a prayer. This is from 1944. Um, so keep that context in mind, but here are the words that are involved here. Lead us to the saving of our country, this is FDR, and with our sister nations into a world of unity that will spell a sure peace and a peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men, and a peace that will let all of men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. That's the ending to the D-Day prayer, a mighty endeavor, the FDR speech. But that unworthy, the schemings of unworthy men is something I've really latched on to as I've started writing. And as I've started working through things uh, in my advocacy and in my commentary, these are words that have really stuck with me as I deal with people that are just obviously bad faith actors, people who just want to cause trouble, people who just want to spread their wickedness and often use buzzwords, ideology and political parties as cover for their wickedness. They're scheming of unworthy men. They're unworthy schemers because they're not just men. They're other people as well. Here's how you need to address them. And here's how we need to address them in our media. We need to understand that just because somebody uses a buzzword, that doesn't mean that's what they are. Their actions speak louder than their words. Are they using a political party as coverage for wickedness? Are they using an ideology or a term like conservative or liberal or progressive or libertarian as cover for wickedness? Are they trying to entice you with religious speak from a particular religion like Christianity or Judaism, or whatever the case may be, to entice you into what their real goal is, which is bad intentions for a whole lot of people that are not like them. The goal of all of us should be to have an America where the most people possible have the most amount of freedom possible. And these people are not interested in that. They're interested in dominating. They're interested in ruling. They're interested in making everybody same, just like them. They will use things like political ideologies. They will use things like religion. They will use things like patriotism and your love of your own country towards those ends. 
They will say that the only real America is people that agree with them, or the only true believers are the ones that agree with them, or the only people who are worthy of our time are people like them. Listen to what they're telling you and believe them, because if they really just want everybody to be like them, what they're really telling you is they want to be tyrannical powers so that they can make everybody be like them. That's not the America we all love and need. That's not the way almost any organized religion that is not a cult is set up to be. There's always freedoms of choices. There's always an ability for the person to make a mindset and a change and to decide what to do. And anything, whether it's a government or an ideology or a religion, that starts with the individual having to be hold to evil, wicked people who are unworthy schemers, it's bad. It's always bad. We could talk theology all day long on, you know, the will of man and all this sort of things. That's not necessarily what I'm talking about here. In the political and cultural realm, people want to dominate. They want to destroy. They want to make things the same, usually exactly how they see things. But that is not compatible with America. America is letting people have the freedom to be what they want to be within the confines of the law. And America is letting people have the ability to be wrong. So if you disagree with them, understand they have a right to be wrong as far as you're concerned. They have a right to be wrong, and they have a right to think you're wrong. And just because we think somebody's wrong is not enough reason to try to get the government or an entity or an institution involved to try to make them think differently. It's the arena of ideas. It's dirty. It's messy. It's fighting. It's not easy. But the arena of ideas it's a lot better than the jail cell of bad ideology and unworthy schemers. We must be very vigilant with people who tickle our ears with words and buzzwords and things that we think are good, like family values, like religion, like belief, like patriotism. But they're tickling your ears with that so that they can do some really wicked stuff against other people that are not like them. And there's nothing good about that. There's nothing American about that. There's nothing Christian about that in every known sense of the word, and there's nothing good that's going to come out of it for our country. This, the greatest experiment in the history of mankind into a free people self-governing, cannot sustain us killing and destroying each other's value. We must respect everybody. We can fight our corners hard, but in the end, we need to remember we're Americans. And that will start and go a long way if we can put aside the unworthy schemers, call them out for what they are, and shout them down in the public sphere. More Hurtel right after this. And I get to talk to one of my buddies, sometime Ordinary Times contributor and a local journalist from the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts, our friend Adam Bass. How are you, sir? Thank you for having me on the show, Andrew. Great to be here. Great to talk to you about what's going on in my, in my Commonwealth uh, yeah. for all you people down West Virginia or across the world. Yeah, and we appreciate you joining us on Hertel Radio. It, it's, a, it's so interesting because uh, Charlie Baker has announced that he is not going to seek another term as governor. Um Massachusetts it has the reputation of being a deep blue state. Of course, everybody thinks about the Kennedys. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, of course, very progressive, current sitting senator there. But 
with the exception of a Devil Patrick administration, the guy before this was Mitt Romney. And now you have Charlie. But what is it about Massachusetts and moderate Republican governors? Because it's, it seems counter to their reputation, but it's kind of commonplace. Well, you know, Massachusetts, you got to remember, it used to be one of the big stopping grounds of the original Republican Party, uh, home to many, many traditional Republican governors, home to Charles Sumner, the one who basically called out slavery over and over again on the Senate floor and was beaten to death, or not to death, excuse me, beaten to near death with a cane by a representative from South Carolina. And, you know, Massachusetts, it likes its moderate Republicans, as well as the rest of New England. You got uh, Phil Scott, a um, couple other governors. You could argue for many that they say Christopher Sununu is a, is a moderate Republican, though, you know, that's a bit fluid in terms of how you define it. But it's very much a New England thing. Um, the idea is that Charlie Baker, I think, has sort of transcended being a Republican and just sort of runs as, you know, Charlie Baker. Um they never want to stay too much to the right, otherwise they get into a lot of trouble. Um, and yeah, I, I think it presents a, t a sort of a balance that that people, uh, voters do like, as they do like split government in, in some way. Yeah, and this is a story with uh, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts that, like almost everything in politics now when it comes to Democratic and Republican, uh, he has a little bit of a Trump problem with his own uh, Republican Party in Massachusetts, and that is part of what's facilitating right. him not seeking another term. Explain that to folks, because it, it seems it's it's almost it seems backwards. But you have a Republican Party that's going to move more to the right, even though it's more of a progressive uh, left blue state. Yeah, this is sort of the name of the game with many Republican parties in across America. They see uh, nationalization as the big ticket for them. And the big name in Republican politics is one Donald J. Trump. So you have Jim Lyons, the chair of the party, who is uh, very much right-leaning and very much trying to embrace Trump-style Republican politics as their ticket. The base, which you can be found sort of in what I like to call the great red blob of Worcester County. Worcester County is the middle of Massachusetts and sort of bits and pieces of Plymouth County. They're a little more Trump Republicans, but you know Charlie Baker's base was mostly Democrats and independents. Because, again, he sort of transcended from being Republican Governor Charlie Baker to just Governor Charlie Baker. And, you know, I think that's just sort of the case with many Republicans across the country. Everything uh, – and this is also the tr truth with Democrats. Uh, everything's becoming more nationalized. Everything is becoming sort of a trickle-down thing on the top of the ballot, and that's the way to success. Whether that gives them success is another thing entirely. Obviously, the elections need to play out. Um, specifically the midterm elections. I don't like picking up special elections because they kind of don't tell us all that much, but a small piece of the puzzle. So you have to watch out for what's going to happen in 22, see if that Trumpism goes far for Republicans. I think it will go far in deep red states, not so much in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Yeah, and you make a great point because with nationalization, uh, we talk, you know, everybody has their favorite congressperson to hate on or love now. You used to never care about anybody's congressperson right. except your own. That's part of the nationalization. And then we have we have examples like uh, Charlie Baker being governor. Uh, of course, Joe Manchin's getting a lot of attention. Christine Sinema on the Democratic side where they're more from more conservative areas, even though they're still of their party. I right. think you make a great point with the nationalization. And I think here in Charlie Baker, you have who, by some metrics, may be the most popular governor in America. He's often flirting with the 70s in approval rating, and he can't run for re-election with his own party in his own state. I'm going to challenge you on that, though, because okay. here's the thing. 
Charlie Baker not like yes, that is a component of it. But you also have to understand, eight years is a long time to run for governor. This is sort of a tradition in Massachusetts that they don't really run for three terms. Um, you know, there have been governors that have had three terms. Michael Dukakis is probably the most well known, um, but they weren't consecutive. So that is just one piece of the puzzle. The other piece is that there have been reports that, you know, he's talked to his family. His family just kind of wants him to move on. Um, his decision, you know, it was reported, I think, in Politico or Boston Globe that, you know, it was a decision made by his family and him. It wasn't because of the party. I think he would have been I think he would have won if he ran again by a closer margin than 2018 because Democrats, I don't think, tried or no, it was it was reported that they didn't really have much of an effort in 2018. Um, especially if more Healy runs at some point, that's another conversation, but yeah, I thought, I think he would win even with a Republican party that doesn't really like him as much compared to other Republicans across the country. I stand corrected. Then this plays into one of the reasons why the national media has been paying a little bit of attention to Charlie Baker though, is he has come to certain people, especially non-Trump or never Trump Republicans. He's kind of become the unicorn flavor of the day as a Republican that's more moderate, but you're saying you think he's just done with politics that has yeah. nothing to do with it. And they're just putting that on him. He's ready to just walk off for the near future. I mean, it, it's it's in, in some ways, I think it's coping. Um, Charlie Baker has never had any national or from what we've reported and what reporters have reported. Charlie Baker is not a man of national aspirations. You know, obviously, there was that one time where he endorsed Susan Collins, but that was more of, you know, a cordial thing. They're good friends. Charlie Baker would not win at least right now a republican primary or or maybe even national election i think he would you know there are some scenarios that he would win but right now in a very polar educationally polarized and just socially polarized country i don't think that's possible now i do think at some point in our lifetimes the polarization will decrease and hey charlie baker theoretically could win but i think he's done you think he's done at least for the near future? So for the near future, of, I mean, so he's talking. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, he's. I mean, think, think about it. like, let's say it goes. Oh, the polarization decreases in ten years, right? I'm thirty, and Charlie Baker's going to be in his seventies. I don't think the American people are going to be wanting another seventy-year-old, uh, eighty-year-old president uh, out of fear that you know they could unfortunately pass away. Um, stability is one of the big things that Americans love, and. Age could come as a big factor. Now, I know that obviously the life ex life expectancy is rising in this country still. Um, you know, if you're, and if you're president, you're going to get one of the best uh, health cares in the world. I mean, uh, but at the same time, that's going to be a factor if, if he decides to run. Yeah, talking to Adam Bass, our friend in Massachusetts. Uh, just to wrap this up a little bit, when you have a dominant political figure like Charlie Baker, who was, you know, probably untouchable electorally, at least, in, or it would be tough to beat him, uh, this is going to open it up. So what's next for Massachusetts politics, especially for the state house? Well, for the state, well, for the state house lower chambers, um, you know, not much is going to change. Maybe Democrats pick up one or two more house seats. They already have 130, uh, so they have a supermajority. Democrats uh, c don't control three uh excuse me, control all but three uh, seats in the Senate. Um, I There's often a joke that you can fill a sedan with all the Republicans in the Massachusetts State House. But for the main, main uh, list, for Democrats, obviously it's going to come down to 
whether Maura Healy or Marty Walsh or when they will announce. Uh, Maura Healy is the Attorney General of Massachusetts, has signaled that she is going to run. Marty Walsh is the current Labor Secretary for Joe Biden, as well as the former mayor of Boston. He has made hints that he could run. So obviously it's going to be a will-they-won't-they they sort of scenario in the couple of weeks. My money on who would win that primary would be Maura Healy, and mainly because, and if I may, uh, bring up something here. This is a book called Don't Blame Us by uh, Lily Geismer, and it talks about how Massachusetts is now a very suburban, heavy political uh, state or commonwealth, and that's the way that they gain power. It's no longer in, like, gateway cities anymore. So because of that, I think Maura Healy has the advantage. And finally, the one thing I want to talk about for Democrats is the lieutenant governor's seat. Um, now, it's be it's becoming a very crowded field. And, you know, at, on one hand, obviously, politicos and journalists like to joke, oh, my God, it's becoming crowded. But at the same time, when are you going to get a better chance to make a good amount of money as lieutenant governor when Charlie Baker isn't running? And as for Republicans, Jeff Deal is currently right now the number one contender for uh, the nomination. There have been rumors that – a former mayor of Taunton is going to run. Uh, a business owner is going to run. I can't name him off the top of my head. I apologize. But, you know, I still have, you know, Jeff Deal as the number one Republican running right now due to the fact that just getting in early and name recognition. Uh, Deal runs for governor, regardless of which the Democrat is. Does he get in single digits? Um, I think he gets low double digits, maybe the 20s or the 30s on a good day. You got to remember, uh, the national environment is going to play a part, too. I do think that Democrats will probably win this race, but if Joe Biden's approval rating is really lousy or if, uh, you know, Democrats are just not having a good day, I think it could be a moderately close race, and I put quotation marks around moderately, maybe a 20-point difference instead of, like, a complete blow blowout. If the if Joe Biden's approval rating just somehow gets back up and Democrats are maybe three points ahead on the generic ballot, I think you'll see a landslide in Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh, he's our man in Massachusetts in the never-boring world of Commonwealth politics up there. Adam Bass, appreciate your time, my friend. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Let Thank folks you so know where they can find you on Twitter and elsewhere for your great information that you bring us. Yeah, so I am at Adam Bass of Mass on Twitter.com. I usually am now retweeting stuff for my job at the Daily Item and Lynn currently writing stuff there. Very happy there. Um, yeah, and I also do a sometimes I do a podcast called The God Cabin where myself, Jesse Hahn, Logan Rabe, and Jack Leary. You can find them at H Jesse uh, at ZT at Logan ZT and at Jack Leary twenty three. We talk about Massachusetts politics. Have some guests on. Have some journalists on. You know, we sort of talk about what makes Massachusetts tick. I love this Commonwealth. I think it's very underrated in terms of you know everyone's talking about swing states or or even just the big liberals or excuse me big blue states like California and New York because they have that big cities. But you gotta remember Massachusetts kind of was one of the big players in starting this whole country. There was the Boston Tea Party. There were the thinkers that came from here. It's one of the big stopping stomping grounds of the uh, old Republican Party and the new Democratic Party. So you know as we often say, there's a Massachusetts connection. Yeah, and we just learned in Virginia, which was four months ago, everybody thought was going to be blue for a generation. We you just never can tell, and we love to cover these states because we do get too national. And on her tell, we love to touch on these states. So we'll keep coming back to you for Massachusetts stuff. Thanks, you buddy. Appreciate. We'll you. do. Thank you so much. All right, thank you, sir. All right, take care.
Welcome back. I'm Andrew Donaldson, and you're listening to Hertel Radio. This is the weekday component. Every weekday, if you're a subscriber or watch on the streaming services on the Big Talker, you get Hertel Radio. We also have the Hertel Podcast, 32 episodes going strong, where we do deep dives with knowledgeable guests and continue the same principles we do on Hertel Radio of turning down the news cycle noise and getting to the information that matters. And nothing in the news cycle has been louder over the last year than the debate over CRT, critical race theory. Uh, our friends over at the Narratives Project have a report out about how we've discussed it over the past year that it's been in the news, how we're talking to each other about it, the misperceptions, the confidence, the nomenclature, and just how everybody's mostly talking past each other and at each other instead of with each other on this subject. So our friend Sophia Sedergren Booker of the Narratives Project, who helped author this in-depth report, joined us on the podcast to talk a little bit about CRT. Not debate CRT itself, but to break down how we're talking about it so that we can maybe have a little bit better understanding. That clip right now. You said, and I'll quote it to you, because CRT touches on our deepest beliefs about what America stands for and the roles of education. Bridging the gap between left and right goes deeper than just agreeing upon or enforcing a standard definition. We've already talked about there's no really such thing as neutral here. We've talked about how people come at this. Um, is part of the breakdown here that we're trying to define something that we're just naturally going to have different definitions of? And maybe we shouldn't even bother with that piece of it and, and just say like, OK, you define it differently than me. But let's just acknowledge that and then try to talk about it, because if you start down the definition path, that's almost like an absolute truth where like, well, I can't I can't budge on this piece of it. Uh, is that what you're finding after you did all this study and all this research on the media narratives? Yeah, I think that is a central aspect of our findings. And that's that a lot of people approach this as if it is a neutral topic that they have some distance to. They We perceive it as though we can define this without any bias. And what we're finding is that that is not the case. We're all introducing bias into our definition. And I think in order to have good conversations about it, as you stated, we have to first acknowledge, okay, your definition of this is X and my definition of this is Y. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that my definition is correct and yours is incorrect or vice versa. It just means that because we are two different people with different experiences and different values, we have defined this differently. And from that, it's a lot easier to have conversations about how we feel about it and why we think it's important or not important to introduce CRT in education, because then we know where the other person is standing. Because if we're approaching the conversation thinking as many people on the left do that CRT is a way to recognize and address racism in society. If someone is opposed to it, it's easy to jump to the conclusion that they're racist. <laughs> Likewise, if you're coming from the right and have your definition that uh, CRT ascribes racism to parts of American society, whether or not it exists, it's easy to conclude as someone who is for CRT is trying to make us more racist or trying to 
make people feel bad about being white. And when we look at it from those two distinct positions, it's easier to understand why people can either be so favorable towards CRT or so against it without passing judgment on them as people. The entire Hertel podcast was Sophia Sedegren Booker from the Narratives Project on CRT, critical race theory, and how it is covered in the media is available wherever you get the podcast or the video portion of Hertel. If you're subscribed to the Hertel radio, you're already going to get it. We hope you'll enjoy it. We hope you'll discuss it. We hope you'll share it. More Hertel radio right after this. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Welcome back to Hertel Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for staying with us as we end out the week. Uh, a great week here at the Hertel Radio that we really appreciate your support, by the way. It's uh, done better than we thought it would, and we appreciate you listening. A uh, little lighter note to end the week uh, and to end this particular show. Let's talk a little bit of a story about a time back in the 1950s where Canada almost had themselves a nuclear disaster. On December the 12th, 1952, the Chalk River NRX nuclear reactor suffered a partial meltdown. Uh, I'm reading this from a Newsweek article. The incident resulted in hundreds of thousands of gallons of radioactive water flooding the core and causing major damage to the reactor. Let's pause right there. Uh, we all know what happened with Chernobyl. If you haven't watched the HBO miniseries on Chernobyl, I highly recommend it. It is excellent, gripping, at times hard to watch. It is well acted, uh, and it shows you... Uh, how catastrophic that was, and perhaps even more frightening, how much more catastrophic it would be if a whole lot of people didn't sacrifice a whole lot of stuff to make it uh, not as bad as it could have been. So back to 1952 Canada, as the reported by NuclearEnergy.net, the major failure, along with, quote, several poor decisions by facility operators, end quote, resulted in a nuclear fission chain reaction that caused the power level to rise exponentially. Uh, this is similar to what happened at Chernobyl. The power rise suddenly spiked and it melted down. Anyway, back to Canada in the 50s. At the time, the NRX reactor operated at around 300 megawatts. On December the 12th, this is 1952, workers at the plant were preparing for a reactor physics experiment at low power. Also something that happened in Chernobyl some 30 years later, incidentally. However, a defect in the NRX shutoff rod mechanism combined with human errors caused a temporary loss of control over reactor power, ultimately causing it to surge to between 90, 60, and 90 megawatts. The energy load would normally not have been a problem, but several experimental fuel rods that were at the moment receiving inadequate cooling for high power operation ruptured and melted. The FAQ section of the Canadian Deuterium Uranium Reactor website states, Thousands of nuclear fission particles were released into the atmosphere. The radioactive water also ended up in the reactor building's basement before being pumped out into the shallow ditches near the Ottawa River. The U.S. was then called in to help with the cleanup site. So who did the U.S. send up there? Well, they found a young trained nuclear engineer in the Navy who had been uh, somewhat of the protege of Admiral Hyman Rickover, who was the father of the new nuclear naval program. 
and of the atomic submarine Seawolf and was asked to send his best to help clean up. Uh, according to the Historical Society of Ottawa, uh, part of the cleanup plan, the reactor had to be shut down, disassembled, and replaced with the team also needing to clean any spilled radioactive material. The intensity of the radiation meant that this team and each member of the team could only spend about 90 seconds at the core location before the operation, which involved being lowered into the core. You think your job was rough. An exact replica of the reactor was built on a nearby tennis court where the leader of this group of men, uh, Navy personnel, practiced cleaning and repairing it. They described it. Uh, it, uh, they described it this way, quote, we all went out on this tennis court and we had an exact duplicate of the reactor on the tennis court. And we would run out there with our wrenches and we'd check off so many bolts and nuts and they'd put them back on. Uh, and finally, when we went down in the reactor itself, which was extremely radioactive, then we would dash in there as quickly as we could and take off as many bolts as we could. The same bolts we had just been practicing on each time our men managed to remove a boulder fitting from the core, the equivalent piece was removed on the mock-up. Uh, continuing, they said, when a Canadian heavy water nuclear plant at Chalk River was destroyed by the accident in 1952 or by a reactor meltdown and a subsequent hydrogen explosion, uh, the crew were volunteered by Rickover to assist with the disassembly so it could be replaced. The reactor core was below ground level and surrounded by intense radioactivity, even with protective clothing. Each of us would absorb the maximum permissible dose with just 90 seconds of exposure, so we had to make optimum use of the limited time. The limit on radiation absorption in the early 50s was approximately 1,000 times higher than it is 60 years later because they didn't know what we know now. The rebuilt NRX reactor was back in service within two years of the meltdown before it was permanently shut down in 1993. The young naval lieutenant who saved Canada, a young Jimmy Carter, who would later become president of the United States. And while he is not known to have been the best president we ever had by a long shot, he is the only one who can claim to have had saved Canada nearly single-handedly with his leadership skills. Jimmy Carter, it might be noted, is the only president to date who is submarine qualified uh, on nuclear submarines, and they don't give those dolphins out to just anybody. As far as the radiation exposure, Jimmy Carter and his wife, Rosalind, are still alive and doing just fine well into their 90s, and God bless them. That'll do it for her tell today. Uh, thank you so much for your support. Whatever platform you're watching and or listening on, please leave a rating and a comment. Let folks know that our little program's worth checking out. And if you really want to do us a solid, put it out on your social media. The links are all there no matter what platform you're on, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify. If you're streaming on the Big Talker or the Big Talker's Facebook page, uh, stick us on your social media. Let other people know to find out about us because I think more folks out there are going to want to get a little bit of news and political discussion with the noise turned down, none of the caterwauling, just information, just folks talking. So what we'll keep trying to do as long as you keep listening and we greatly appreciate you. Remember, it only costs you a click, two if you share it, and we sure appreciate it. So wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well, we hope you're well-fed, and we'll see you on Monday for Hertel Radio. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.